there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Would you say that Pep Guardiola bottled that final? Great managers bottle finals just like Arsene Wenger did in Paris against Barcelona. Harry Simeu and uh, Lawrence Bavay, right? Yeah, you can say that if you want. Yeah, yeah. I think if I did that on Sunday League, I, I'd never, I'd, I'd expect to never get invited back to my Sunday League side. Even my five-a-side five league, Zinchenko is guilty of that a little bit in terms of, it's a very limited role at Arsenal. With, with all due respect. <laughs> but it is, it is. But, but there's a I just feel sorry for Zinchenko. He's literally He's just, just coming to hammer Zinchenko. Zinchenko. <laughs> no, 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 but you know what I mean. I, I love Zinchenko, but... I remember Arteta's first press conference when he sat down and was appointed Arsenal manager and I thought, you were not my choice. You were not the guy I had on my list. But I'm in now. Is laying the groundwork to be one of the most consequential centre backs to ever come out come out of this country. Whatever people say about Arsenal and their recent drop off, it's not because of the forward line. The problems are at the other end of the pitch. I'm not saying you are. You make a valid point, but generally speaking, I think you're both at the same time. I think you still have that soft underbelly, and I think you're a little bit too emotional. If you go on and win the league, what is the moment do you think that caused the ripple effect that allowed you to win it this season? Hello everybody, welcome back to The Ripple Effect with me, James Lawrence Alcott. I am so excited about the next few weeks of football, but in particular, talking about that massive, massive game, Arsenal against Man City. Sorry, Man City against Arsenal. It's at the Etihad. And after a weekend of chaos, it's going to be an absolute belter, as are the two podcasts this week. We've got Harry um, Samu and we've got Lawrence Bouvi to talk about the defining moments of the Premier League season so far. Summer Arsenal, Summer Man City that brought us to this game of the season, but also some other elements wider than those two clubs. I really, really love this podcast. I'm really, really excited about where it's going. And in particular, sort of that ripple effect, thinking about what causes what. That is what this one's going to be about. And I think everyone's going to absolutely love it. The second one this week. You've got to make sure you listen to this one as well. It's about the signings of the season. We're going to go through 10 signings of the season. But in particular, it's it's going to be about how the season will be remembered and the signings that, again, will define the 2022-23 season. We're coming to the end now, guys. And you can hear in my voice, there's a little bit more energy, isn't there, with Jimbo? Well, that's because Queen's Park Rangers won a game of football. And I will let everyone know that until we inevitably lose the next one but I am well happy and our word of the week this week is chaos and rightly so it's been utter chaos this weekend and this happens every year the teams that you think aren't going to get any points aka Queen's Park Rangers go and beat Burnley who have run away with the championship season and beat them at home the first time Burnley lost this week QPR Burnley's not even on our running order but I just couldn't wait to talk about it but that word chaos it is defined as a state of utter confusion or disorder. 
a total lack of organization or order. It's also known as any confused, disorderly mass. Sounds a bit like Tottenham, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds a bit like all of us when we're watching some of these games. It's been fantastic. Let's go through some quickfire ripples and then we'll get into a fantastic roundup with the guys and talk about that game of the season and the defining moments that led to it. First of all, Chelsea versus Real Madrid last week. Uh, we're sort of picking up ripple effects along the way, along the way. So if you do spot any, make sure you let me know at James Alcott, and I will sort of. I, we're sort of banking them all. So make sure you do get involved. And by the way, if you are listening to this and you have enjoyed the podcast so far, there's so many great ones. We did a fantastic one on Newcastle last week. Go check that out. Uh, we've done a brilliant one on uh, Liverpool and Chelsea and the rivalry there. And more important than that hit that follow button for me and give us a five-star rating. Massively, massively helps the podcast to survive. And essentially, you're supporting me and my family. So go and do that, will you? Chelsea versus Real Madrid last week. Of course, uh, Real Madrid on their way through to that semi-final against Man City. Huge, huge game. Of course, that's going to lead to lots of ripple effects, I'm sure, as well. But (laughs) what was funny, I thought, was that Chelsea were playing really well, actually. And they kind of looked like scoring. And then the camera panned to Todd Bowley and instantly... Chelsea conceded that's on Todd Bowley I get a lot of heat for being the you know the jinx the jinx and but Todd Bowley I think is you know he's one of my rivals out there right now but that was hilarious he literally just showed him going oh he'll be happy with oh whoops um Trent Alexander-Arnold's new position is this the way forward for Liverpool I mean copying a little bit but I'm intrigued to see how that position kind of reveals itself over the next sort of 6 to 18 months because it might be one where, you know, look, the way we watch football now, we're so much more intelligent than we used to be. And that understanding of with the ball and without the ball, I think I think is becoming more and more fluid. And I think that's what's led to what previously was seen as him not being able to be a midfielder because he can't get on the ball and turn in those tight areas. Well, what if, you know, the game is a bit calmer and you're looking to control the ball and then you just sort of trot forward knowing there's space around you. You don't have to have that full 360 awareness that a lot of centre midfielders have. So that idea that he couldn't be an actual midfielder, despite obviously being a very good one in his youth um, football days, I think he can. And I think the idea of a midfielder is obviously very loose now because we're seeing it absolutely everywhere. John Stone stepping into midfield as well. It'll be interesting to see how him in that role leads to his role in England possibly changing. Will he get more game time, less game time? Is Gareth brave enough to have a go at that? I'm intrigued. Uh, Lumi sent this one in. This is brilliant. It's a possible ripple effect of when a manager, brackets Klopp, or Eric Ten Hag, realises he has has to replace a keeper, Karius or David De Gea, after they drop stinkers in big European games. We'll be talking about Ramsdale and his stinker as well. Sounds weird, but I'm talking about, obviously, the goal that Southampton scored early early doors because that sort of set in motion that disappointing result for Arsenal. But I think think it is the case. I mean, Eric Ten Hag, his uh, views on all of his squad, I think there was some... You know, his mind was made up for a good few of them, I think, in that game against Sevilla because it was absolutely terrible. Problem is, will it affect the transfer that you get for some of these guys? Because as we've spoken about, again, on the Ripple Effect, cracking podcast with Sam Peoples from United Peoples TV talking about the takeover, FFP is a bit tight when it comes to Man United and they need to bring some money in. So that could hurt that element of it. Dennis Cregan, this is great. Spurs losing 6-1. 
leads to announcing a new manager next week or this week. Stellini gets the axe, Ryan Mason until the end of the season. Brackets. And if a new manager won't start now, Spurs finish out of the European places. Less games next season means that, exciting times here, ready? They finish second after losing on the final day and lose in the FA Cup final. Oh, the torture of being a Spurs fan right now. Last couple of ones. This is from Madrid Zone. I thought this was great. So when Vinicius Jr.'s family visited Madrid before his signing, his mother's luggage got lost in transit. Stick with me. Uh, Califat um, took them straight to a high-end store for replacement coving. Califat was, uh, is obviously with uh, Real Madrid. And it made a positive impression uh, as Califat had gone above and beyond in unforeseen circumstances. The trip to Madrid came after at least five by Califat to Brazil, where he met Vinicius Jr. and his family. Real Madrid knew they were competing with Barcelona for Vinicius Jr. at the time, and the smallest details mattered. So essentially what I'm trying to say here is if Vinicius Jr.'s mum's bag doesn't get lost, does he still sign for Real Madrid? And if he goes and signs for Barcelona instead, how different do they look? Also, do Liverpool win the Champions League? How many teams have been hurt by Vinicius Junior and Real Madrid? Is Benzema the same player that he has been with the creativity that and, and you know ability to destroy that Vinicius Junior has been able to offer in the last two, three seasons? And does Eden Hazard have a decent career at Real Madrid? Last one from me before we get into it. What happens if Pochettino does go to Chelsea? It looks like it's going to happen. I mean... So this means that the Real Madrid job becomes available when Carlo leaves. Poch then can't take it because he's just signed for Chelsea, which means maybe these rumours about Arteta going to Real Madrid does occur after a disappointing end to the season. Does Saka go with him and win the Ballon d'Or several times? Because the Ballon d'Or, we're going to be doing podcasts on that very soon. That is up for grabs in the next 10 years, obviously. And then what does this mean for Nagelsmann? Is Nagelsmann going to go to Arsenal by the start of next season? It could happen. It's football. And coming back to that word of the week, it's chaos. It always is. Right, let's get into the main bit of the pod. Thanks for listening. As I said, give us a follow. Give us a five-star rating and enjoy. Simu. 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 Right, let's go from there. Harry Simu. There we go. And uh, Lawrence Bavay, right? Yeah, you can say that if you want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Join me on the Ripple Effect. Thank you guys for, for joining me. What a week it is. It's huge. And uh, we're going to talk about kind of the, the defining moments of the season that's kind of got us to this game of the season, which would have been even more of a game of the season had Friday not happened, which I kind of called because I just, you know... I was hoping probably, maybe it was because I was hoping QPR would do it themselves. But I di- did wonder that Friday game. And you always seem to struggle against Southampton, don't you? Yeah, we haven't got a great record against Southampton in, in recent times. We drew with them earlier on in the season as well, which I don't think a lot of people saw coming. And that was a game in which Arsenal were completely in control in the first half and then just came out and, and just didn't turn up for the second. So, yeah, there was a little bit of uh, anxiety, I think, among Arsenal fans. But I think that happens because of where Arsenal are in the table and the fact that everyone's so desperate for them to go on and win the title, there's just that added bit of pressure. Yeah, it was, and obviously not the best start. That doesn't really help either. Yeah, certainly. Um, do you, did Man City have a team that, especially on the run-in, is there a game that you're like, I don't like that one? Do you have a sort? I mean, do Man City have bogey teams anymore? I think I think some people are looking at Everton potentially, even Brentford away, um, both away uh, games. 
I don't want to be too arrogant. I just think the way that we're playing football at the moment, I don't see... I, I see a loss against Real Madrid, of course. I'm not arrogant enough to say we're going to smash Real Madrid yeah. in the Champions League and even the FA Cup final against Man United. But I do think in the Premier League, you know, if it wasn't for a dodgy penalty against Bayern Munich, you're looking at sort of 12 wins in a row in all competitions at yeah. this stage in the season, including Munich in the Champions League quarterfinals. Um, I think we can get towards that 17, 18, 19 game winning figure in the Premier League um, Unbelievable. to wrap it up. So I do look at the fixtures and I think even Arsenal at home, I think if we play to what we can do, if we can control the game in our way, I, I see it as a as a straightforward game as much as it can be. Uh, th- that does sound arrogant, but it's actually bang on, I think, because I think you're stupid if you don't back Man City in every game that they play. Look, it's it's football. Like no one thought no one thought Southampton would would get anything against Arsenal. There's millions of the, those games all the time. But if you look at it before those games are played, you can't you can't not say that Man City are favorites in most games of football surely. Yeah, no, I think anybody looking at Manchester City and and who's watched Manchester City over the last four or five years knows what an incredible team they are. And that's why I get frustrated when people sort of try and take away credit from Arsenal. Only Liverpool fans understand what it's like trying to keep this Man City team at bay. And um, and Arsenal have done that up until this point. Arsenal, at the time of recording, are top of the league. And that's plenty to be proud of. But in a weird way, going into the game on Wednesday night, I actually think the pressure not being so much on Arsenal now because everybody's going, well, it's gone. they've blown it now. It's gone. They're going to go to City. They're going to get beaten. And that's that. I actually think in a weird way that might suit Arsenal. I'm not saying Arsenal are going to go there and win the game, but just to take that extra layer of pressure away could be a good thing for, for a young side. Yes. Uh, so this was possibly one of the most chaotic Premier League weekends of the season, if not of all time, despite also being the FA Cup weekend. The man is from the top to the bottom doesn't cease to amaze. And with the Premier League uh, hotting up more than ever, uh, we're now going to sort of have a look at the sort of culmination that's on its way here because there's so many different ripples throughout the season that come together to create a massive bang. So in this week's Ripple Effect, we're going to look at what has happened along the way to cause this weekend of chaos in the Premier League. So we're going to have that bit of a roundup and then we'll get into you guys and how you've kind of got here because, you know, that's something with Man City as well. Is if they felt a bit wobbly for a second earlier in the season. But I think some moments that felt like negatives are starting to turn out to quite possibly be positives. What's certainly negative was uh, the result for Spurs. This is, I mean, it's hilarious. So what are the ripple, ripple effects from Newcastle? Six, Spurs one. First of all, the, the thing I can't stop thinking about is that Joe Willock pass. Unbelievable. It's filth. Yeah. It's absolute filth. Yeah. Uh, how... How good do you think he is? Because the thing I thought would happen with Newcastle, I thought they sort of get found out a little bit. Now, there's there's a Twitter account called The Other 14. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's basically, you know, there's this idea of the big six. And the, what the guys do is they put together stats and uh, a league table of how you're getting on if those guys weren't there, what your points would be. And Newcastle, I think, are on plus 29. And the next is plus 12, I want to say. So, although they're sort of they're this they're sort of morphing into this new beast, mm. they are still that old beast, if you know what I mean. And Joe Willock's kind of, I guess, the early moments of it. He was like a star signing a couple of years ago. You know, as an Arsenal fan, you'd seen him. Like, how good is he? And because I think that he's been known as a bit of a sort of workhorse who had that purple patch of scoring goals. But when you see a pass like that, it's it's moments like that. These 
fan bases will look at that player and look at him slightly differently. Like, how do you see him? I think with Joe Willock, it's, it's always been about confidence. And in order to build confidence, he needed to play regular football. And at Arsenal, he, he was always in and out of the side. The, the, the difficult thing for Joe Willock when he was at Arsenal was that I don't think he falls into the category of midfielder that Arsenal were playing with at that time. Now, maybe right. now it would be different, but I don't see him as a, he's not a six mm. and he's not quite a 10. He's kind of somewhere in between. And only this season have you seen Arsenal look to play with two eights, which has really helped them develop. So in the past, Joe Willock didn't fit into either. He's not even your normal eight, really. No, he's not. Yeah, he's not. But he has got this incredible work rate. He does get up and down the pitch fantastically well. But I think what he's kind of renowned for is those late runs into the penalty box. And at times watching him at Arsenal, you looked at him and you thought, well, he's always going to get in a position to score goals, but he doesn't really give you the rest of the game. And I think at Newcastle, he's found an environment where it doesn't matter so much because he's got midfielders around him that can do a bit of everything. And um, and obviously, as he's got game time and he's played more in the Premier League, he's gone on to a whole nother level. I think he, as a goal-scoring midfielder and as an attacking force, is incredible. But I still think at the top, top level, he might struggle because he doesn't bring you the all-round game. I, I really do feel that about Joe Willett. Lots of energy, lots of... Uh, positivity, but there is something missing, I think, and I don't want to sound harsh, but there's uh, there's going to be some sort of heartbreaking decisions for for some of that Newcastle mm. squad because like, another Jacob Murphy, like <laughs> like in his own face, you can see his post match interview afterwards. He was like a little bit, he was kind of annoyed at the question of like you can believe that you did that. Mm. He was like, no, I just couldn't believe that we were three 0 up. You were in shock at what you'd done. <laughs> let's be honest, but he'd been he's been consistently really really. Consistent for Newcastle. Again, do, do those kind of goals, could that, although it's a positive thing, and we're going to talk about Liverpool and, and the result that they had and how that actually maybe sort of put them backwards. Do you think that these guys doing so well, will there be that ruthless nature from Newcastle in the summer to sort of make those changes? Because I agree with you. I think Joe Willock, Joe Willock I'm intrigued by, I think there is a, quite a high ceiling there. You've got to have the right club. Actually, another thing that sort of popped into my head was how many players have we kind of lost by them not getting that right first move. like Someone like Maitland-Niles, I remember thinking, it, I thought he was a really good player, but just sort of bounced about, different like loan spells. Mm. You know, Phil Foden stayed, that was always a discussion with Man City, wasn't it? Him sticking around. Yeah. Should he move on, you know, move on or not? And obviously that, that one's worked out. But for Newcastle, do you see, do you see it being pretty cut and dry, them replacing Spurs as what Spurs have been over the last decade let's say yeah yeah this season I think I think absolutely they've got the momentum they've got the the fan base they're all on side with Eddie Howe and you are seeing a crop of players five or six players who I think I mean we talked about uh, Murphy Willock Dan Byrne Joe Linton I think it's five or six players riding the crest of a wave they're never going to hit form like that ever again I look at Fabian Delph at left back for, for the Centurion season maybe the greatest club side in the history of Premier League football for me and he's playing at left back you know and he was you know he's left his city and what's happened to his career since you yeah. know a little bit unlucky with injuries but there's, there's five or six players I think even with, with with Murphy I think you could argue he's championship on his day you know and that's a bit harsh but yeah. but they're all riding the, the the crest of the Eddie Howe wave mm. and if Newcastle want to be a serious kind of uh, uh, long-term replacement for Spurs, for Chelsea, if they were to fall out for a couple of seasons. Newcastle will have to be ruthless. I think Willick's the only one that I see. I think Joe Linton hasn't got a long-term viable role at Newcastle as a Champions, a Champions League club. But I think someone like Willick does as a kind of squad player for energy, for um, having that kind of workman-like ethic in the midfield as a substitute, as a squad rotation kind of player. I think he's the one that definitely stays as they kind of improve. <laughs> 
It's all to do with expectation as well, because at the moment, if Joe Willock, let's just use Joe Willock as an example, if he performs one week and doesn't perform for a couple of weeks and then, you know, comes bursting back onto the scene again, people go, well, Joe Willock's having a good season. But the higher the expectation becomes at Newcastle as a football club, the higher the level has to be. You, You have to perform every single week. And I think there are players in that team that sometimes, you know, are bang at it and you look at them and you go, that's fantastic. Mm. But there's other weeks where I think they're a little bit short and maybe someone will get them through the game. I think as the expectation grows, it's a bit like what happened at Chelsea when they sort of first got the money, isn't it? Where they had a set of players that you looked at and you go, yeah, they're a good group of players. But over time, you have to keep improving it if you want to keep pushing forward as a club. Yeah, I totally agree. So if you heard a bang there, that was my fist against the microphone. No, I I think you're totally right. And that's the difficult thing with the sort of ruthless nature of it. What it's the same with Eddie Howe. He's got to be. Sm- they've got to stay ahead of the curve, and he has to make some really big decisions. I think, say with Joe Linton, I get what you're saying. There might be something of him because, with say Jacob Murphy, he's just really good cog in that team. He's so happy to be there that he's just very selfless, and it allows Trippier to be more influential. So it works for the team. With Joe Linton, there might still be a place for that with the Champions League but in terms of say winning the Champions League which is where Newcastle are trying to get to mm. and Eddie Howe if he, want, he, if he wants to survive in that job he's going to have to keep doing pretty well because that's going to be a big thing next season you talk about that expectation is everyone's going to play differently against them next year yeah 100%. so different we've seen it every single time don't we like they won't be able to kind of cope with it but it you know with the sort of the, the money that they've got and they're going to be able to spend and the players are going to be able to bring in you know, it does feel like Spurs need to get their act together like quickly, because the problem is that the Conte that Conte press conference that is like that could have a decade's worth of damage. Like he said, this is the history of Tottenham, and one ripple effect I think from the weekend, right, is that we were what. What was sort of set in stone was that Conte Conte is just a little bit too much here. A little bit, it's sort of drifting towards feeling a bit unhinged here like he's not been professional blah 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 what I've heard quite a bit is or oh, maybe he maybe wasn't as as you know as crazy as as we all thought do you think that's do you think that's fair when it comes to Conte and do you think do you think that that press conference is gonna really really hurt Tottenham for a really long time because I can't see where the next manager comes from no I don't think it hurts them long term I think 10 years is a bit is a bit much for that I think Conte was saying absolutely the right things I think Spurs are a bit of an embarrassment in terms of how they handle things the fact that they've sacked Conte and kept his backroom staff uh, in in the rest of the Premier League season even as we're recording linked to sacking you know Stellini and bringing in uh uh, Ryan Mason again, which is absolutely crazy. I saw Harry Redknapp. As well. They just Harry, checked to come and get me. It's all jokes. You know, Harry Redknapp yeah, would yeah. get a tune out of these lot for five, six games. I know it's ridiculous. It's more, I more than Stellini because it's, it's a former kind of, um, you know, man- manager kind of assistant who's who's part of that. You know, he's lost the dressing room, Conte. Um, it's not. I, I think the way he went about it, all jokes aside, as a kind of rival fan, I don't think you can come out and talk about a club you know, that you're not aligned to, it's in a different country to where you're from. Talk about Tottenham in those regards uh, to, to a set of fans that are very good home and away. Whatever you say about Spurs, they're, they're, they're a proper fan base and they're a proper old football club. He didn't cover himself in glory the way he talked about Spurs, but look, I, I think Tottenham, it's a big if, of course, but if they get it right managerially, they're only a couple of signs away from getting back into the top four. Now, winning the Premier League, I think a lot of Spurs fans were looking at some of those squads, even Mourinho with Bale and all that when they, when he came back. Can we win the Premier League? That's always a stretch for Spurs. But I think that they're only a couple of signings away from being a top four club, you know, next season. So I don't think they're going to do it this season. I see. I disagree. I think it's so. First of all, 
if he just keeps his mouth shut and they finish fifth, don't even get into the Champions League, right? It, it, and it's dire. It's not not Eric Dyer. It's not good. And and but he just sort of shakes their hand at the end of it. He goes off to PSG or whatever job he wants because I I think it hurts his reputation as well because this keeps happening. Harry Kane might sort of think about it. They might have had a bit more time to go and get Nagelsmann and go, look, you have got, this is the squad. The expectation's low. This isn't working, but come in. It might have been a lot more, had some form of stability. But the reason I say 10 years is because I think, I mean, maybe you could get Nagelsmann. I re- Do you know what I really wonder? Nagelsmann said no to Chelsea. He's not going to say yes to Tottenham just yet. I wonder if he's waiting on the Arsenal job. No, just in case, just in case it goes, it all burns down and Arteta, for whatever reason, wants that Real Madrid job because Real Madrid, that's been that's been sort of muted a little bit that that Real Madrid might want Arteta. And and I'm not saying it would happen. I'm not saying it would happen. I I think Arteta would be. Well, it's Real Madrid, isn't it? But it would be cheeky for him to move on. And it's probably silly because he's got a lot of credit in the bank. But if you're Nagelsmann, you wait. Don't you? Yeah, but you wait because I think that people are looking at Spurs and looking at it as a bit of an impossible task at the moment. The comments that Conte made, the the, the worrying thing is, and I, I think Spurs fans will probably agree with this, is that most of what he said really hit home. And I think that will, you know, that would be a problem because you're a player looking from the outside in. And, and we live in an age now where there are narratives around everything. And one of the narratives around Spurs has been never get over the line, you know, lack ambition. Their ambition only has a a certain ceiling that they can get to. And then a manager comes in, a a well-renowned manager who'd done brilliant things elsewhere, comes in, doesn't really progress in his second season, in his second full season, and then starts with that. And and all he has done is fueled that narrative even further Mm. to the point where people are going to be talking about it even more now from the outside. And if you're Julian Nagelsmann... You've been sacked by Bayern, but nobody really thought you deserved it. Nobody looked at that and went... Tuchel struggling as well. Exactly. Nobody looked at Nagelsmann sacking and went, well, he had to go. But now, if you're Nagelsmann, you know that the next move in your career is huge. It's so important because you can dwindle. You can fade away if you get the the next job wrong. I don't think he'll take that job for that reason. I I don't think it's necessarily waiting on other jobs. I just don't think that's an appealing uh, position if I was him. The one thing is, in terms of... The vessel having some of the like bits that you need to get where you want to go to. What he would, he'd be a god there like day one, wouldn't he, Nugsman, if he was able to get get through the door. But if they don't get him, I just think whoever they get is going to feel, you know, low rent. And that then leads to everything again. And Kane's gone, and he? He's got to go. I'd be so Has disappointed to. if he doesn't go. It just to make, like, if he finishes his career without a single trophy. Yeah. That's, that's outrageous. His though. That's his mentality. We talk about his, he's got he's got people compare him with his, his form to actually what he's achieved. Now his form is deserving of trophies, of course. But you look at the big moments in his career. Okay, it's all well and good. You know, I saw him pop up with a great goal against Newcastle this weekend. Of course, world class is a world class finish every day of the week. There's three or four players in world football who can score from that angle, in my opinion, like Harry Kane did against Newcastle. Where is that for England? You know, in the Euro final. Where is that uh, against Croatia? Uh, when he should have made the right decision. Where is that against France when he missed a penalty? I, I know it's very harsh, but we're not talking about Glenn Murray in the Championship scoring you know, 30 goals, Mitrovic for Fulham, 40 odd. This, this is the highest level of football. And you, you, know, you, only, you only win a gold medal but in the Olympics stuck, by though. margins. 
Harry Kane is trying to achieve the highest trophies in the world. He's trying to win the World Cup for England, which I think we, he should have at some point won a trophy with us, whether it's the Euros or the World Cup. Yep. He bottled at least two or three moments. That's absolutely the case. I've... He's not shown up for two finals two, for Spurs. A League Cup final against City, he was completely missing. Um, he's, he's missed big games for Spurs in terms of his appearance, in terms of grabbing the game by a scruff of the neck. So I think he should stay at Spurs for his mentality. <laughs> I think that's absurd. For real. That, like, but think, am I wrong like, in terms of there's at least five or six moments where a striker should at least the decision against Croatia, not to I'll give you the Croatia it. one. I'll give you yeah. the Croatia one. Penalty but against is France. Penalty France absolutely. Yeah. But that's so but if you, you can you can spin that and going, that's a that's a striker who scored an outrageous amount of goals mm. going for goal and that's one kick. That's what you're breaking it down yeah, that's to. That's his job, to so, kick, kick the ball from a penalty spot really hard into the net on right. target. That's his job. That's his, that's I, his I, I get job. that. But, they're, but they're, also, they're also humans. So the fact is that like, I would say 95 of his 100 kicks are wicked. Yeah, against, yeah, against and Norwich it, City. <laughs> no, but seriously, against Norwich City <laughs> no, and, no, and no. Aston Villa but away mate, on, a, on a random Saturday at 3pm, it's not the same level. But if he, move, but if he moves, say he moves, he goes to, say he went to Man City, right, mm. a year ago, and he wanted to. He wasn't yeah, allowed to. Yeah, yeah. So that's got nothing. Again, that's not choice. He goes there. He's already won. How many trophies has he won since then? Certainly at least. A, he's already he's a Premier League won, champion, yeah, right? Yeah, he's yeah. won all those things. And yeah. all that's washed away. So I think he's, he's, a, he's been too loyal. I think he's definitely been too loyal. I think when you talk about mentality, I think a fair point is de- he could have been far more ruthless earlier on, as could his brother when <laughs> signing contracts. Yeah, that, that's the thing with Harry Kane, right? You know, people say he's trapped, he's stuck. He chose to sign that contract. And nothing from then to now has really changed at Spurs. It's always been the same issues. It's always been the fact that their investment has a, a limit that is never going to take them to the level they need to go. In a weird way, although Harry Kane is a fantastic footballer, Spurs need to move him on now, I think. Because I agree. they're never going to fully rebuild until they do that. Yeah. And whether that's because they need the money that comes from his sale or because they just need a new focal point, I don't know. But they need to move past Harry Kane and start building a team. They might not get the glamour manager in, but they need a manager that they're going to trust and they're going to give time to to rebuild. Because in my opinion, they needed to rebuild after that Champions League final loss. That was the point. At or which or strengthen. Go. It was or one or the other, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what they've done is kind of kicked the can down the road, brought in sort of big name managers and gone, well, here's a bit might of be money. Right. Might be right. And you yeah. might be able to do it, but it's not enough to actually kick on and push on. I will say, if he doesn't go this summer, then you can talk about his mentality a bit. Because there's no, zero reason to stay at Tottenham now. Absolutely none. Apart from that's silly loyalty at that stage. Well, and the records, and that's that's where I, I question yeah. his, his competitive nature because I think he's more interested in the goal-scoring record. Uh, and I think someone like Valky Veghorst has got more of a career now already in England because he's won a League Cup at Wembley in front of 80,000 fans. That's a, for, for one of the biggest clubs in world football. Yeah. And Harry Kane scored, yeah, he scored a hat-trick against Norwich City lads a couple of years ago on a Saturday at 3pm. That's amazing. And I think as well, even people like, let's take Alan Shearer as an example. I think if you sat Alan Shearer down no cameras, no microphones, and you asked him if he regrets staying at Newcastle all that time, I think he would say yes mm. because he'll look back at his career and he'll say, okay, w-, and, and he won a Premier League and he yeah, would yeah, probably yeah. still feel that he I think you're right. I think you more. go to Shearer. If you go to Shearer, go, look, we can move some stuff about here, right? We'll, so when you go to Newcastle, we'll do, we're going to do that three years later. You've got a three-year contract. Go to Man United. That would have been, what, 96, 97, 98? Okay, let's do four years. He's won a treble and all those things. I think he would have gone, I think you're right. I think he goes, yeah, I probably should have done that for sure. And I think Harry Kane 
definitely has all those regrets. He has to move on. Anyway, so do we. Arsenal at three, Southampton three. Uh, so what was the ripple effect of Xhaka's illness before the game? Vieira played and had a quiet game. Who, <laughs> why, why did Xhaka soil himself? No, I don't know if he did soil himself. But why did he miss that game? Is that sort of a lasagna gate that will come out in the wash? I don't know. But they definitely missed him. Uh, the, the, so this game, it felt like an iconic game. Like Friday night under lights. I know Friday night we generally like, don't really like that. But they do, they do sort of knock up some like decent games. And there were some there are some moments here. So I'll just run through them and then you give me your kind of views on them. I might finish off with the uh with this one, which is the huddle. We'll talk about that. But a couple of things. So Bednarek got a concussion. Was that actually a good thing for Southampton? He could be seen he, he, you could see him sort of coaching Southampton players during a stoppage and they scored instantly after that, the Bednarek effect. And this is um, this is a stretch. But anyway, did Michael Keane's screamer against Tottenham a couple of weeks ago, tempt Partey into shooting in the 99th minute and wasting that opportunity. How did you feel when Partey had that shot? That was... You must have wanted a scream. That was the angriest I was in the entire match. And that's mad when you think about the nature of the goals Arsenal conceded. But that moment for me was just so infuriating because genuinely at 3-3, when the eight minutes go up on the board, I thought Arsenal were winning it. Mm. Yeah. Because they've shown that character throughout the duration of the season. And... You know, that just was to, arrogance for me. It was madness. Pure. Was madness. He has hit a few screamers, to be fair, but he's only scored two of them. Yeah, and they've all and they've been from much closer to the penalty area than he was, and and they weren't at situations in a game where you were deep into injury time, and you know you're not going to have a flurry of chances. You might get one, and it needs to be a good one. And particularly when you look at the options he had to his right as well, Bukayo Saka was in space. Ben White was sort of joining in on the overlap. There was so much he could have done. Uh, there to kind of keep the move alive and he, he tries a, a ridiculous effort from there. Yeah, but obviously don't blame Thomas Partey, blame Michael Keane for that. Right, Boovy, the huddle. <laughs> oh, it was it was embarrassing. Um... Did, is, were you like me? I, I, I sort of saw it happening. I tweeted it. I bet this, in 90 minutes time, this is either like iconic or a new meme. And it was, I mean, it was probably always going to be a meme. I think if I did that on Sunday League, I, I'd never, I'd, I'd expect to never get invited back to my Sunday <laughs> League side, even my five, five aside League. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's schoolboy. It was, um, it was emblematic of a young squad. It felt like Zinchenko, despite the trophies that he's won at City, and and I love him to bits as a City fan. Yeah. He's obviously in that changing room at City with a lot of older players, and that would have never happened in a million years. And it does remind me a lot of the Liverpool season, Brendan Rodgers, that we we won't let this slip moment, yeah. um, all that kind of around Palace and, and the Chelsea but, game. And th- this Arsenal side, whatever happens, if they win the league or not, they remind me of that Brendan Rodgers-Liverpool side who had so much uh, pace and power up front, Sturridge and Sterling, Suarez. They were the best side that league, uh, that season in that league. They never won the Premier League. It's, it's a big... You know, there's a big gap between grinding out a Premier League title and, and looking, having flair on the pitch, having this emotional quality that Arsenal have got. That was embarrassing. It's Southampton, lads. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. So the one thing I would put forward is so that it is. It was very much Gerard. Let's not let this slip. That was done after the game, after a victory. Right. We go to Norwich. Whatever. This was in the middle of the game. Like. If you're being kind, it did feel cringe, and you you could kind of feel it from the players around them because they didn't. They were sort of like, okay, "Well, you're you're really going for this," and Jacko said, "Okay, best go in." But if you you know if you've gone two 0 down and you're trying to resolve that situation, what else is there? Anything else you can do? This is exactly the point. Like it, for me, I understand why people look at it from the outside and say it's cringe. 
believe me, if it was Tottenham doing it, I'd be the first one to jump on social media and have a bit of a laugh about it. But at that point, Arsenal were capitulating. Arsenal were falling apart and somebody needed to get everybody in and kind of get them to, to focus again. And the performance did improve after that, you know. So I'm not going to sit here and say that it was ideal. And I think it does make us a bit of a laughing stock. And I think people will obviously use it as a meme, as you say, yeah, and it yeah. will go on for a while. But I think Zinchenko, more so than what he's brought to the team in terms of football ability, has brought that leadership over the course of the season. And I, I don't really have an issue with him going to that back line, especially, and being like, guys, just chill out. Yeah. Because Arsenal played that entire first half as if it was the last five minutes of a game they needed to win. The entire first half. Mm. The intensity was too high. And that's a problem where you can be too emotional. Which we've seen a few times with Arsenal, actually. Like, even if you go back to the, the North London derby and Rob Holding, and I know he's given a bit of instruction, I think, from Arteta, but it was a little bit too hot then as well, or the back end of last season, a little bit too hot there as well. What I thought was revealing, and I think part of the sort of resistance of that group was Odegaard's the, the captain there. And it, we sort of went, oh, you're not. You're not actually the captain. Zinchenko is like... He's the sort of voice of this team a little bit more. Um, but they did get back and it was free free. And we now find ourselves uh, on the verge of a cracking game, the game of the season for sure. How do we get to this point? Uh, we will go into the old school ripples. We're going to go in huge depth in just a second. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, let's go back, Harry. Before this season, key moments. 31st of August, 2011. Arteta signs for Arsenal. He signed for 10 million from Everton. Had he never signed, would he now be the Everton manager? Where would we be? Maybe. Um, You know what? It was so difficult watching Arteta during his playing days to imagine him, A, becoming a coach, I think, and B, becoming this type of coach where it's super intense because he never came across like that as a player. Really? Uh, he never came across like that as a player. I thought actually at times... He was a captain though. He was a captain at Arsenal, but he was in a. He came in during this time where Arsenal were really desperate. It was deadline day and I think they made three or four signings on that deadline day. Mertesacker as well, I think. I think uh, Andre Santos came in, a left back. There was a number of players that came in at that time and you're looking at them and going, these are just panic buys. And Arteta in that defensive midfield position never really looked the part. He never was mobile enough. And I remember sort of when he first came in as manager thinking, the good thing is that you understand the situation that Granit Xhaka is in and has been in. So you're probably the best person to know what it takes to fix it. But you're right. If he doesn't sign for Arsenal on that deadline day, then this whole thing doesn't transpire. That's interesting, the Xhaka element of it. Because... Mm. I thought he's done. I didn't yeah. get it. And I think, you know, I thought it got, it went a little like Neville and Carragher sort of, I think it was the, after the Newcastle game, Xhaka came out, was quite honest. And I remember thinking, that sort of ended. I think, cool, that was honest. And then Neville and like, you can't be honest. I was like, hang on. Like, it, it did get to a point where he was somewhat of the scapegoat, but at the same time, he would make stupid tackles, get sent off at stupid occasions. I'm amazed that Arteta, 
for someone who was a defensive midfielder has been able to see that he was. I mean, it's more. I guess it's more. He saw that he wasn't that because he's he's played as this sort of I think facilitator. It's, it's more that he saw that the structure around whoever that player was was just not working. And, you know, it didn't really matter who came in there. I remember when Francis Coquelin came through and everyone was going, look, that's the midfield destroyer. But eventually he got exposed as well because you had centre-halves that were nowhere near close enough to you. You had full-backs that were bombing on at every opportunity, meaning that the centre-halves were having to split, leaving you with a huge gap to sort of control. I, I just think that Arteta looked at Xhaka and went, your skills are this, this and this. This is your skill set and it is not suited to this role. And whoever plays in that role needs the protection around him. And the structure at Arsenal has been so much better in the last 18 months, I would say. And that's seen Xhaka push on. And one of his first signings was was Partey, wasn't it, as well? So again, kind of sees maybe that one guy that you need and maybe learnt that at Man City mm-hmm. because that's always been such a crucial part of your great sides. Yeah, I think Arteta has taken a lot from the Man City Centurion eleven. It was the kind of 4-3-3, a deep, a deep line defensive midfielder that can get on the ball. And then you have two... Uh, more further advanced midfielders in the kind of Odegaard role, which is similar to De Bruyne and David Silva playing that left side of Fernandinho is very similar to Xhaka. I think I think Arteta's almost copied it. I think he's added the inverted fullback aspect to it for more protection in midfield. So there's less turnover of the ball. There's an extra man to give the ball to. Um, Zinchenko, for example, is a little bit higher up to the kind of when there is a counter-attack, you can get the ball quicker. Um, but for me... Uh, I, I think the Jack and narrative is a little bit overplayed. I think I think he fell off massively. The stuff with the with the kind of uh, the booing at the Emirates was poor. I think Arteta's brought him back to being an average player. I, I, I still think he's got the emotional argumentative aspect to his game. Where at, at Anfield, I don't think Fernandinho grabs someone. I don't think Fernandinho goes in for a big challenge and, and gets the Anfield. That is so. Fans the going. Anfield thing is so overplayed. It is so ridiculous. There are two big moments where no, you're looking for someone with, especially with Jack's age category being so much older than everyone else. At, I, I at think what, what's fair and what you're saying is the sort of the ice in your veins that Fernandinho had that it would infuriate the opposition in terms of the fouls that he gave away from a different position. Like the, that Jacques bit of like the opportunity to wind up, but not cleverly. I think th- that works for me. I think the I, I know what you mean though. I think they could have. The sort of Anfield roar was sort of part of it, but I don't think it started from that moment. No, it, and I was at Anfield that day, and there was a there was four or five incidents around that period of the game. There was one I think Gabriel Martinelli was involved in a challenge. He went down, probably stayed down longer than he should have. That infuriated the crowd. There was a coming together between Konate and Jesus. There was a few things. Do you know what I think is what people keep missing? The first goal is really fortunate. Exactly. <laughs> like a massive, like it comes off someone and then, oh, Salah's there at the back post. No, look, fair enough, Salah's there. But like, it wasn't a, right, here's a pass, there you go, score a goal. It wasn't like that. No, it wasn't. It was a Henderson sort of stab towards goal that was going wide and happened to land in the only part of the sort of back post area that Gabriel couldn't get to. And there was Salah doing what he does best, fair play to him, turning it in. But that turned the game. Mm. You know, it wasn't the, the Xhaka thing. It's, you know, Arsenal play with too much emotion. Sometimes they do. But for the last two weeks, we've been saying, well, they've gone 2-0 up in games and then they've completely gone off and not been interested. You can't say it was good. I think there's a big... Obviously, we've had this debate before, but you can't say how Xhaka reacted, even if it didn't affect the fans, but that's your opinion. That's absolutely fair enough. You still don't want to see your most experienced player in midfield in terms of how long he's been at Arsenal, in terms of how old he is as a player. It didn't look... All right, maybe it didn't get the Anfield fans going as much. I think, I think it did, personally, but obviously I wasn't there like you were. But still... Someone in that midfield who's meant to sort of show poise, show control, 
he's going up to people, squaring up to people, going into big challenges, you know, on the touchline. That is not a Premier League title winning kind of display at Anfield I, I just individually. Think, I just think this is another example of one of those narratives in football that isn't going to ever get shaken because if asked... But he's if, not if, cute. I don't think he's cute. No, he's not, not, not cute about it. He's not cute about it. You're right. But if Arsenal compete in that way, so they do slightly cross the line a little bit, show a bit of steel, show a bit of sort of, you know, we're, we're here and we're not going to get bullied. It's, oh, they're, they're over-emotional. And then if they don't show it, then it's Arsenal have a soft underbelly. It's like two default positions that people seem to go into. I'm not saying you are, you make a valid point, but yeah, generally speaking... I think you're both at the same time. I think you still have that soft underbelly and I think you're a little bit too emotional. I think, well, I think, look, it's, it, you know, it's, it's all new stuff, isn't it? Like, that's the thing is that a lot of these players don't, they haven't done it before and they desperately want it. Whereas I think there's that, there's that calmness about Man City that comes from having won as many titles as they, they have. And I do think there is something valid in the fact that if you think about the experienced players, you know, if you think of Man City, those experienced players, it's, you know, it's David Silva, it's Vincent Company, and Vincent Company's, you know, a loud man, but behind closed doors, Fernandinho, there's, sort of, yeah, there's a bit more sort of like cunning there. Whereas with Arsenal, Sinchenko screaming, it's, it's Jack who has... Crying, has I thought he was that. crying. <laughs> We've seen him crying, haven't we, a couple of times? This... I mean, look, I, look, I don't think there's anything wrong with a man oh, being mate, in touch with his God, emotions. I think when you're in a Premier League title race, you don't want to see your boy, who's been uh, successful at the other club that you're in the Premier League title race with, you know, crying on the touchline. I mean, I get it. Yeah, Apparently. It looked like he was crying to me. Over arousal, it's known as. I wasn't Isn't there. it? Over arousal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, 2016, Arteta turns down the Arsenal job after retiring. Um, Arteta turned down the opportunity to lead the Arsenal Academy. He was then offered Pep's assistant job. Learns his skills under Pep and, as we said, has been copying him ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and then 2019, Arsenal sack Emery. We were chatting about this before we started recording. I thought this is interesting because everyone is absolutely loving him right now. And rightly so. He's done brilliantly. And there's a great video on my channel about it. But... uh, if I was hoping that there might be something that like Emery might provide the title for Arsenal and therefore it was the right uh, idea to, to sack him um, based on that alone, even though he's this wonderful manager. Do you think that there's something in when you have an iconic manager like Arsene Wenger or it, it will be for Pep, the next guy is it's impossible to succeed? It's difficult to succeed. It's really, really difficult to succeed. because Has anyone done that? I can't think of like certainly in like recent memory, someone who's had like absolute dynasty, and then they move on. Moyes, I just I just don't think it's possible, is it? It comes from people being blinded again by narratives. So people would look at that Arsenal team at the back end of Wenger's tenure and would go, "This team is absolutely good enough. It's Arsene Wenger that's preventing them from getting in the Champions League," which was never the case. The investment was poor. The recruitment was poor. We can go, we could do a whole other podcast on Wenger and, and the way it sort of all came tumbling down. I know that's not what we're here to discuss, but when Unai Emery but came that, in... that verbal contract is binding, so you will have to come down for that. Cheers. But when, um, when Unai Emery came in, first of all, he had no control, really, of the transfer business that Arsenal were doing. And when you think about it now, I mean, Socrates coming in, uh, Licksteiner, you know, that, that was the type <laughs> was of player shocking, that, that Arsenal was signing. That was such a bad squad. That was the type of player that Arsenal was signing. Yeah. They'd brought in Sven Mislintat, who had done really well in Germany with Stuttgart, sort of identifying players for cheap amounts of money, bringing them in, etc., etc. Unai Emery never really got what he wanted. But at the same time, Unai Emery struggled, I think, to to sort of give the team an identity. 
and and that was partly because he was maybe thinking one thing and having something else pushed on him by the club because that that isn't something that's put at him often he's known for attention to detail yeah he's known for provide creating a, like this is how Villarreal play the, like Villa he's kind of moved it across a little bit in terms of how they play hard to break um, break down great on the counter-attack both those teams so for, for, for you to say that it does feel like there's some kind of meddling in there one positive from it possibly is it that if that guy can't be successful can he be provide an element of transition to the the future and with Arsene Wenger supposed to be quite laissez-faire he's the was the opposite which we always see with managers although it failed did it kind of I mean as I'm saying this I'm saying this doesn't work because I was going to say having someone who's all about detail you then have someone who's kind of a bit in between in Arteta and you go oh okay that works but this analogy doesn't work because that squad's not there, is it? Well, <laughs> Just I, smashed yeah. it up. I think what happened was Arsenal recognised as a club that this was much more broken than just Arsene Wenger sort of going off the boil a little bit. They looked at it and went, actually, look at the players we've brought in pre-Emery and during Emery's tenure. Very few of those signings have worked out. The culture's broken. I, I think Lee Dixon told a really interesting story the other day about how Unai Emery went in and was like, actually the weight of what Wenger achieved is too much and he started taking things down from the training ground. Arteta's done the opposite. Mm. It's about getting that message across. You play for Arsenal Football Club. This is what Arsenal Football Club is. So you're either all in or you're not. And I think Unai Emery tried to just change a little bit too much in the culture and, and it all just ended up sort of becoming a bit of a mess. And listen, Unai Emery's a great manager, I believe, when the expectation isn't really there. Mm. So Sevilla, you know, great in the Europa League in the league did they really do that well not really mm. um, even you go back to his sort of uh, Villarreal days you know you look at what he's done he's always been better when he's been just cup competitions exactly in, cup in competitions yeah. and where the expectation is limited yeah mm. and that's the case Aston Villa with all due respect to them they brought him in off the back of Gerrard who was a nightmare at the start of the season and they've gone well this is a massive improvement I guarantee you when the expectation level rises at Villa there'll be more questions asked of Unai Emery than, than there are today. I agree. A really quick one, Bibi. Uh, so with, when Pep does go, that's going to be really hard. Isn't it? That next guy, do you think it can, you know, the standards can remain? Yeah, I have to back the, the, the City hierarchy in terms of having a strategy long term. I think there'll be a debate around someone like Vincent Company with what he's done at Burnley. And it's not just about getting Burnley promoted. Uh, arguably, for a lot of fans in the Championship, they've seen Burnley as one of the greatest sides to ever get promoted out of the Championship in terms of how they play football. Couldn't agree more. Progressive. Uh, they've got a young squad as well. This is this is anti-Burnley. So if, yeah. So, uh, and, there is, and so quickly as well. Th- there are consequences the... from Guardiola because Company would have learned what it means to... To uh, to coach that kind of progressive football on the training ground and get your get your club pressing hard off the ball, get your side pressing hard off the ball, play, you know, playing possession based football at Burnley, that is a little experiment that went well for the company. I think City hierarchy will look at someone like that, or they might look at the Barcelona approach where they they brought in a Luis Enrique a couple of years after Guardiola left. He went on to obviously win a treble, a Champions League, um, the last one they've ever won. So th- there's that. There's two uh, narratives for City and uh, the hierarchy is. Do you start afresh with a, a brand new young manager who could be there for another five, six, seven years? Or do you go straight for the kind of continuation? It was, it's the Guardiola 2.0 for, for three or four years. Um, but I think either approach with the, the astute investment from the hierarchy in the squad, which has been 
as, as close to perfect as any football club in European competition for the last five or six years in terms of the calibre of signings we've made. Mm -hmm. And I think actually the financial investment's been fantastic. They're not massively expensive players. There's a lot of 50, 40 million pound players, but Julian Alvarez, someone like Ortega's come in, Rico Lewis is coming from the academy, Phil Foden, Cole Palmer, there's a lot of quality there as well. And Hands they off Mikel, by the way. And they stick well, around. Exactly, exactly, that's the, that's the thing. Like, so the final thing on, on Arsenal, I think is really crucial in all this, was August 2021, when they stuck by Arteta after that difficult period, you know, who's it? Deserby is the eleventh longest-serving manager in the Premier League right now, and I, I find it always really interesting. Every single year, if I look through my videos on my channel, in sort of like October, there's a little patch of like new managers, and then, and before an international break, same in March. And but there are just so many changes in managers. It's it's very brave to stick with someone. And Arteta was like, he was really, it was close, wasn't it? Or it felt like it was close, but they, they backed the man throughout. And because I think with Pep as well, I think it, regardless of how good your strategy can be, and I agree with everything you've said, it's just sometimes you've got, to, when you've got a guy who's got the energy and got the vision to sort of look ahead and get it right. That's pretty impressive stuff. But it, it, it was, it was a tough period, wasn't it? So they it didn't was, stick with yeah. It was a really tough period and, and there were a lot of Arsenal fans out there questioning whether this was going to work. And I think where you have to give Edu immense credit is that he kind of blocked out the noise. Um, not just Edu, but the club's owners as well. Everybody in the hierarchy was able to just block out the noise. And, and I guess when you're in a club and you're within the walls of it, you understand exactly what's going on. And there were a lot of factors around that start to the season. Players missing, uh, disharmony behind the scenes. There was a lot of factors that we from the outside wouldn't have necessarily understood 100%. The guys within the club did. And what Mikel Arteta has been able to do is go there and sell them a vision and slowly, slowly sort of tick boxes off of that plan. Yeah. And, and I think when you're a manager these days, communicating is just as important as anything else you do. Because I remember Arteta's first press conference when he sat down and was appointed Arsenal manager. And I thought, you were not my choice. You were not the guy I had on my list. But I'm in now. Because everything he said just sort of really ran true with Arsenal fans in terms of what had gone wrong, what needed to change. And once you get that kind of, if you want to call it, it's like a manifesto, like imagine you're in an election. That's kind of what it was. Yeah. And then to see him sort of ticking off boxes, although the results weren't always there, I think you, you always had something to refer back to. And I think that's where a lot of managers go wrong. If you don't communicate clearly, people don't know what to measure you against. And if they don't know what to measure you against, then it's purely going to be on results and you'll never get any more time. Mm. On to summer 2016, we're talking about Man City now. Pep becomes Man City boss. One of his first signings, John Stones. I mean, I sort of... What we what we see in our world a lot of time is you, you can you start to think about... You think in opinions, don't you, a lot of the time because you know you're going to have to offer it at some point. And it was quite a while ago. It was probably about six months ago. I was starting to go... I think it was the World Cup, actually. I was lucky enough to be at some of these games. And look, they were easy games. And and Maguire was sort of having a good game. But then I'd look across and I'd go, John Stones is walking through this game. Like, mm. it was so easy for him. And then you keep watching him at Man City. And for someone who had a struggle, didn't he? You know, going for a lot of money, going for a lot of money to... Did he go for a lot of money to Everton first? No, he just skipped over Fine to Man City, Everton, didn't he? Was yeah. A, it was a lot for the championship, I think, at the time. But, but um, when you talk about money well spent, mm. you know, seven years later, he's John Stones is allowing Man City to play a different tactical style. Yeah, I, I, that's incredible. How many centre backs can you know? Uh, do you know from from England that could play in midfield for the the, the, best, the best club in Europe in terms of how we play football? At least for the last three or four years, the fact he's doing it now 
at his age category where he's, he's played at centre-back in a normal kind of four at the back for you know, seven, eight years in the Premier League. Mm. And then he's being asked to convert. That's how naturally talented this guy is. He goes under the radar because he looked like a, a little bit skinny, frail when he first joined City. There was a game Leicester City away in the rain where Jamie Vardy absolutely crucified this guy defensively. But he had Bravo behind him. I don't know if you remember that guy, awful keeper. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, Joe Hart remembers him. But, but John Stones, we, we don't talk about it maybe because he's more of a quiet character, but he's put his head down. He could have let the abuse from from fans, which was pretty rife at the time in terms of how many mistakes he's making on the ball, trying to pass it out from the back. And I think there's some really hot areas within the football pitch, goalkeeper, centre-back, where you've got to have some really, really mm. thick skin to, to get through the, the bumps in the road. And John Stones definitely had to do that. Yeah, I think he's building a career where if he does win a European Cup, Big question mark about that, of course. But even with a domestic treble, uh, even with four Premier League titles in five years, he is laying the groundwork to be one of the most consequential centre-backs to ever come out come out of this country. At least one of the most talented. I mean, we talk about Rio Ferdinand and John Terry. I mean, it's not off the ball. They're better defensively than John Stones. That's for sure. But he's getting it's closer, almost a different game and closer now, though. And closer. Yeah, and I, it I changes don't think he all the time. He yeah. he's, dicta- he's not just popping up into midfield, knocking it 1 2. I think Zinchenko is guilty of that a little bit in terms of it's a very limited role at Arsenal, with, with all due respect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is but, but there's a difference. I just feel sorry for Zinchenko. He's literally just <laughs> come into hammer Zinchenko. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know what I mean? I, I love Zinchenko, but he pops into midfield to link play up 1 2s, pop it around simple. He does that very, very well. And I think there's a very there's a big argument that's absolutely fantastic. I love that in football. But Johnson is. He goes beyond that. He's a centre-back, pops into midfield as an inverted right-back, and he's spraying balls around. He's doing things first time. He's actually dictating play. He's arguably doing it at a higher level than all these Liverpool fans, like Trent popping into midfield. I think John Stones is doing that at the same level, if not better, than Trent could do it at. I think what I find interesting about it is, and maybe it's an aesthetic thing, is the fact that when we're thinking about these players, it's it's right-backs going there, or left-backs who really want to be left-wingers, popping into centre-midfield, or... With John Stones is not that he, you know he's just you know he's turning into a bit of a libero there. I think it's, I mean that comes back to Pep though as well in terms of seeing things. And I think this is a big thing now with football is that what we thought it was is just getting smashed up and, and yeah. broken into so many different pieces. And so this idea of previously you play centre midfield, you might you might if you're feeling really you know fancy drop into the, the back line. It's from wherever you, wherever works for you now, be it right back or or centre back, and I know he drifts over to the right, but I, yeah, I just think give John Stones his flowers for a second there. But again, good business really for someone that he he sort of, he has stuck by a little bit, and actually he's popped out of the team and gone back into the team, which another thing that Pep Guardiola does uh, very very well. Last one, 29th of May, twenty twenty one, losing that Champions League to Chelsea. Obviously, the following year, the lose to Real Madrid. Was that were those two games the big splash in the water that meant okay we need Erling Haaland we need to get this one over the line? Uh, yes and no. I, th- I think I think the Real Madrid one a little bit more. We we couldn't finish our chances. Um, uh, we needed a striker in the Bernabeu. Jack Grealish had the best chance to kind of really get the game out of Real, Mad- Real Madrid's hands. They get back in it with an unbelievable couple of efforts from Rodrigo. Uh, Erling Haaland in that game means we beat them four five nil. Seriously, we were that good in the, in, the, in the game, obviously. But the Champions League final, which is obviously the biggest single moment in, in Man City's club history, the European final, uh, the European Cup final, that was more a question mark of Guardiola and his over-analysis of games. And I think he's actually reverted this season back to more of a manager, a bit like an Ancelotti, where he just wants the best players to play in the right areas. He's playing early Harley up, up front. Uh, he's playing... 
uh, you know, De Bruyne in, in a normalised position. He's playing, um, you know, Ruben Diaz. At the start of the season, Ruben Diaz wasn't getting getting a game. You know, it was as simple as that. I know he had a few injuries, but I think this season, he'll look at the Chelsea, uh, the Chelsea Champions League final and say, if we get to another Champions League final, I'm going to play Erling Holland down the middle. I'm going to play Rodri in midfield. Fernandinho is going exactly. to bring him back in for this one game I mean, I mean, just to talk, make it right. I mean, you think about it. I mean, I've, thankfully, I've not thought about the Champions League final since you brought it up for a good couple of years. So thanks for that, James. But, but <laughs> uh, woe is you. <laughs> but, but it was it surely one of the, the biggest managerial errors in the history of Champions League final. Totally agree. Uh, football ever. For someone that no smart. or Rodri. For someone that smart to get it that wrong was frightening. I can see what he's trying to do. He's trying to get Gundogan in midfield to move the ball quick first time, have a bit more confidence at the base of midfield. Um, you know, Fernandinho is getting old. Rodri is still relatively a new signing, so I could see it. But I think if we get to that Champions League final again this season, if we're lucky enough to do so, that will be the big. It won't be about Erling Haaland. It will be about whoever plays wherever for City. It will be about just just playing the basics. <laughs> football, basics with football it. lads. Yeah, yeah. Don't mess with Boovy, it. Would you say that Pep Guardiola bottled that final? Yeah, look, managers bottle <laughs> finals. I mean, if you look at Alex Ferguson, he had twenty-five years of being at the biggest club. In world football, we had three or four generations where he had Andy Cole in the 90s, David Beckham, Cristiano Ronaldo, Tevez, Rooney. He won two Champions League finals in 25 years at Man United. And he, he lost two. You know, Guardiola's only, only lost one. And Ferguson lost two to Guardiola himself. So it's very, very hard to win more than a couple of Champions League you know, trophies. So um, he did bottle that final in terms of how he managed it. But I don't think that is a kind of um, analysis of his career. Great managers, hear you say it, great, great managers bottle finals, just like Arsene Wenger did in Paris against Barcelona. Because well I, I do think with that, that, as much as for every Champions League uh, final against Chelsea, you'll have these evolutions of the game. <laughs> so he kind of like, he almost has to go through them all to sort of... to. You know, again, it's one of those where it's like eighty percent of these work because he's the guy's an absolute genius. And so, if he stops doing that, you won't get the good ones. But yeah, I agree with you. When it gets to that final, we should have just kept it simple. Right, we're going to go broader afield now. Some defining moments that have led us to this title race. This is interesting stuff. Now, Liverpool Palace at the start of the season. Do you remember this? Because I think when we, what I'm trying to do here with this pod is like look back, even though we're not there yet. And I think there are certain, we're going to do a podcast talking about the signings that will define it. Darwin Nunez as part of that will inevitably be in that podcast. And in that one all game, Liverpool were the rivals for, for Man City at the start of the season. And you remember that they, it was a nil nil, poor game. Um, and Darwin Nunes gets sent off in the 57th minute. I think uh, Joachim Anderson undid him, didn't he? Um, but after that, he kind of got... Well, first of all, he misses three games. I think Liverpool had lost to, or drawn with Fulham before that. And then all of a sudden, they're on a bad run. Luis Diaz is playing well, and then he gets injured. And that did seem to have a sort of knock-on effect as the season went on. And in particular, the, the thoughts on uh, Nunez this, this season. Talking about Liverpool, there's two games here... That one, and I'll talk about another one in a second, but how do you feel about Liverpool in terms of them not getting anywhere near the title race this year? Do you think it was, it was possibly some of these moments at the start of it, or was it inevitable? I don't want to say it was inevitable, because that would be disrespectful to everything that Liverpool had done in the last three, four years prior to that. But I think you could see them at the end of last season as a side that had gone 
really far. There was a potential of a quadruple on and it just all started to fall apart for them, didn't it, at the end? And I remember at that point looking at the Liverpool side and thinking, is this the end of the cycle? And I think some of the business that they did in the summer suggested that they felt that as well, that maybe Jurgen Klopp felt that. Sadio Mane leaving was huge. Darwin Nunez coming in, big expectations, big fee. But was he ever going to come in and hit the ground running in the way that maybe some people hope? I think that was a bit far-fetched to think that. You mentioned a couple of injuries as well. But for me, the biggest problem was in that midfield. Yeah. It just looked like it had run its course. And so for me, actually, to see Liverpool drop off and to struggle to get going after the disappointment of last season wasn't a big surprise. But I didn't think they'd be this far adrift, I have to say that. Uh, one thing I will say that I, I do think it did matter a little bit was the fact that in terms of creating chances, Liverpool's still up there to a point with with you guys. They just weren't taking those chances. And Darwin Nunes was a big part of that problem. Like, I, look, he obviously offers something. But I got a lot of heat earlier in the year kind of going, look, this guy is not Erling Haaland. And unfortunately, the thing that was always going to affect him was the fact that he got bought the same summer as your rivals for the Premier League title and they bought Erling Haaland and he's gone and done that and and you you didn't take your chances and I think if at the start of the season they are flying I don't think that midfield I think there's a you know with Man City there's a fear factor isn't there as you come out of the tunnel in a lot of games I think that Liverpool lost that fear factor really really quickly and when he gets sent off as opposed to say he stays on the pitch, scores the winner, they go and win the next one because they've got a bit more, you know, confidence. That's a team that's kind of struggled in front of goal and Darwin Nunes in particular. So I do think it carries a little bit of weight. Another important game for Liverpool. They beat Bournemouth 9 0. Now stay with me. Because this win, in terms of sort of sometimes it going well and that taking you backwards, I think people went, Oh, right there, no, there you go. There you go. The Liverpool, there, no, we're all right. It's okay, it's okay. But in fact, it kind of provided a bit of false hope and, and they didn't still didn't truly go on a proper run from that. It also massively affected Scott Parker's future. He's had an absolute stinker of a season and uh, has affected his CV massively because he uh, got caught up after that. How have you felt about Liverpool? Because you, you would have expected them to be up there with you at the start, surely. Yeah, I did. Um, I don't blame them for falling off because you know great city size, great United size have fallen off, off after winning uh, titles. It, it, the adrenaline, even of losing a Premier League title that they did on the last day, the last 20 minutes of, of the Premier League season, they lost the Premier League title. It was almost as comparable to the, the QPR result in terms of late-minute drama. Yeah, And then they lose the Champions League final, where I thought they got outclassed. They... They scraped an FA Cup and a League Cup final against Chelsea. You know, even in the League Cup, they were lucky, really, with a, a weird offside call for Lukaku. So, um, I, I don't blame them for falling off. Um, I do think they need a lot more investment in midfield for sure. Um, but I think, I think the signs are there. I know the Bournemouth result. You know, it's against Bournemouth with all due respect. But even the way they smash United, I, I, I think you put your if you had to put your chips on one manager with the, a, even a couple of signings, even Caicedo from Brighton, McAllister, Mount comes in, you know, that's 120 million quid. That's not ridiculous. Spurs mm. spent a, a similar amount this summer and we talk about Spurs never investing. So they're, they're a couple of players away and if they get the, you know, the, the, the energy back in the legs, I think there's a lot of fatigue in that, especially in Van Dijk and Trent. It seems like a lot of fatigue in that Liverpool score. There's a World Cup halfway through, you know, the season that has influenced some things. I think they're a couple of signs away from having another run of winning the Premier League title. I think they feel a bit jaded in the mind as well in terms yeah, of the, the, uh, the approach that. for them. That's that's my question mark on it. Is like the, obviously Jurgen Klopp's phenomenal, but as football seems to be changing season by season now, can he can, can he stay ahead of it and rejuvenate this team? Um, 
Yeah, it's interesting. Leeds won Man City 3. This was on the 28th of December 2022. Rico Lewis's first Premier League start. So why is this important? It was one of the factors that contributed to Cancelo leaving Man City uh, after frustrations in terms of his game time. And then since then, they've created this new system where Rico Lewis doesn't even play anymore. Um, so do you think this was a this is a key moment in, in your season in terms of figuring it out? I said at the start of the podcast, Man City, it, at that point, specific time it didn't it felt clunky it didn't feel like there was any pace in that team we now kind of have come to realize that actually he doesn't want an outrageous amount of pace in that team he wants to be able to control mm. but bringing Rico Lewis in and, and the way that he uses that winter period I think is always really clever that's where he uses the squad to, to great effect and Cancelo's one that sort of made way again something that we thought was a massive negative at the time mm. again Pep's, Pep knows doesn't he I did I I I have an opinion on things as a manager. I think you've got to keep the best quality players at your disposal. A bit like when Mancini brought Tevez back in the fold. He was playing golf in Argentina for three or four months, comes back and scores a couple of worldies against Norwich and that contributed towards us winning our first Premier League title. So I always look at that and think if you can't get Cancelo on side, someone with pace, someone that we largely considered a year ago, even a year ago, as the best fullback in world football for a lot of people, if you can't get him on side, there's something deeply wrong with your ego at the club, with all due respect. Now, Guardiola deserves to have the ego where he can say, Cancelo, you're not right for us. But at the time, I, d- I didn't see it. But now, three months on from that, or four months on, Riccolo's coming in, actually, it galvanised the squad to say, hang on, there's a kid coming in, he's 18 years old, he's come through the academy for a, a large part of his life, but he's been at the academy for about 10 years. And it's not just about his quality on the ball, which is absolutely superb. He brought a very simplistic way of playing. He'd knock it first time in and around. A bit like Zinchenko at Arsenal. was like popping it around midfield as an inverted fullback. It was really, really nice to see. Now, he's not playing at the moment because, um, unfortunately, Nathan Ake and John Stones can do that with a bit more experience defensively off the ball. He's, they're not going to get caught out. Um, but he's he was instrumental this season, if City do go on to winning the Premier League, of recalibrating the City side to say, we've got to play with an, a work ethic which is comparable to an 18-year-old kid who's come in and demonstrated more for the City shirt than anyone else in the City side up to that point in December of of last year. So he's definitely a major, major part of whatever happens in the Premier League title race this season. We were talking about earlier, you know, the likes of um, Jacob Murphy, Xhaka as well. That's that's the one thing I would say, like, keep in mind when it comes to, you know, 11 players on the pitch and they don't all have to be superstars. They have to fit the squad, fit yeah. the, sorry, the, the style of play. I think that's the one thing I would, you give all of those guys. And Rico Lewis is another example of that in terms of just coming in and it working. Because I think there were moments, there were games where they played, I think the game against Liverpool that they lost, Cancelo plays and he almost plays like a right winger. And it just didn't, it didn't fit, it didn't work. But they were sort of probably trying to crowbar him in a little bit. But Rico Lewis just kind of works, does his job, gives it to the better players. And even though he's not really playing now, he's kind of given a little bit of an understanding of what they wanted to do moving forward. So I think that was that was huge. January 2023, uh, Trossard signs, 27 million. Madrid, of course, goes. We're going to be talking about both these guys. Um, but what is interesting is, again, it goes both ways. So Trossard gets a hat-trick of assists against Fulham, a 3-0 win. The th- interesting thing is the last three games, he's not started. And you've drawn all three of those games. So he gives and he takes, Trossard. Is he costing you the title or could he bring no, it to you? Leandro Trossard is a wonderful player and he really helped Arsenal through that period without Gabriel Jesus. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, he, he scored a couple of goals. He obviously provided a, a number of assists, which have been key. 
But Arsenal's best front three is Martinelli, Saka and Jesus when they're all firing. And whatever people say about Arsenal and their recent drop-off, it's not because of the forward line. You know, they've they scored two uh, in the game at Anfield. They scored two at West Ham and they scored three the other night. The problems are at the other end of the pitch. So I, I wouldn't look at any of the attacking players and say, you know, you're the reason that Arsenal have just sort of given up control in this title race. Okay. And uh, last couple, first of all, uh, Newcastle, the uh, the Pope sending off. We'll never forget that, of course. <laughs> but that meant that he didn't play in that Carabao Cup final. That meant that they didn't win that Carabao Cup final. Does that mean that Man United win it? Then they start to think that it, this could be a quadruple. They take their eye off the ball and it turns it into a two-horse race instead of Man United having a chance of actually going on somehow winning the league. Is that too much? Uh I'm not sure. It was obviously massive for, for Newcastle. Um, I don't know how much it infl- I think Man United had gone to win that game anyway. I looked at Newcastle in the League Cup final and I, I did think it felt like the occasion was a little bit too much for them. The Newcastle fans, for obvious reasons, are so massively expectant of their club. They have not won a trophy since uh, there was black and white TV in this country. You know, that's how, that's how old it was. So uh, I think Pope and Goal, I think Man United would have just ridden, ridden the wave of um, that game and just knocked the ball around and scored a couple of goals like they did on the day. Okay. Final question is off the top of my head. If you go on and win the league, what is the moment, do you think, that caused the ripple effect that allowed you to win it this season? Whoever's got one first, both for Arsenal and for Man City. I I can go because I think it's a bit of a negative one, but we drew 1-1 to Nottingham Forest after beating Arsenal away. Uh, The the Arsenal away result, obviously, was symbolic for how we play against Arsenal or Premier League title rivals, but after that, against Forest, we drew, and it was a real poor moment. and And players have come out and said there was a massive moment in the changing room. People sat down and got their heads around what's gone wrong, why are we vulnerable, why are we not putting in the effort, and you could see a marked improvement, improvement week in, week out after that game. Um, and the energy, the enthusiasm, the work rate off the ball, even though it's been high all season, so much higher after Nottingham Forest. I think they thought hang on, we've got a Premier League title to win here. We've got another game at the Etihad against Arsenal. We can win that. That's what I think the energy is. I think Forest away was a real symbolic moment for City. Mine will be the Reese Nelson goal against Bournemouth because, you know, people have been watching Arsenal sort of perform in the first half of the season and going, you know, they're playing really well, but they're going to fall off at some point. You know, they're not going to last the distance. Probably going to be a bit of a drop-off in the last two, three months of the season. And that moment, I think that the outpour of emotion inside the stadium was obviously great. We've beaten Bournemouth, but it wasn't because we'd beaten Bournemouth. It was bigger than that. It was this team don't know when they're beaten. This team will keep going until the very end. And when we talked earlier on about the expectation in the Emirates Stadium to go on and beat Southampton at that point where eight minutes were added on, that was created by that Reese Nelson moment because of what Arsenal had shown they could do this season. So I think that would be the moment where... If Arsenal do go on and win the league title, you would look back and say that was it because that's when everybody started to believe that actually anything's possible with this team. They're not there yet. They're not perfect, but and, and sometimes they're going to make us sweat for it. But, I mean, that was a, a massive moment. It was Bournemouth, but I can't remember the stadium going off like that, you know, since it opened. Good luck, boys. Thank you. Cheers. We're going to need it. <laughs> 